On this episode of AV Week, we talk Dante's USB-C adapter, a chip shortage is hitting Pro AV, and touchscreens don't transmit COVID. All this and more on this episode of AV Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week, episode 504, Dragging Pro AV. Support for AV Nation is brought to you by Atlas IED, innovative audio solutions for every business environment. And by FSR. And by Sennheiser. For over 75 years, Sennheiser has been a leader in pro audio and is now offering a wide variety of touchless and traditional audio solutions for both corporate and educational campus-wide audio. Welcome to this episode of AV Week. This is your weekly roundup of all the latest news and stories for the AV industry. I'm your host, Matt D. Scott for avnation.tv. This week, I'm filling in for Tim, and I'm pleased to be joined by Willie Franklin. He is a senior technology specialist at, and I didn't ask the name of your university. I'm sorry. <laughs> Glorious Otterbein University. Otterbein University, uh, opposed to the undisclosed location that's currently sitting in my spreadsheet. Then we have Mr. Frank West. He is the VP of Systems America for QSC. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Thank you uh, again, both of you, for joining us. And we, we've got to have a little fun because when Tim's not here and we do this flawlessly, everyone thinks it's super easy for him. So we've got to make it look like it's a bit of a challenge. Gentlemen, we're going to start this off with an episode, or with a story that comes to us from AV Network. Audinate is shipping a Dante AVIO USB-C adapter. It is uh, one of the first USB-C adapters on the market. It's going to give you the ability to deliver and receive two channels of audio over the Dante network. Willie, let me let me start with you on this. USB-C is still fairly new in the Pro AV space. It's been on, on Macs for a while, on PCs for about a year and a half, I would say. Um, it's still pretty new. Is is this really the the starting point of USB-C being prevalent and, and being that next evolution of USB technology in the Pro AV space? You know, I would love to say without hesitation that's an absolute yes, but uh, at Otterbein in Westerville, Ohio, we really have not had the opportunity to see much with regards to USB-C utilization on campus. 99% uh, of our users are still working by way of standard USB or HDMI, uh, so when it comes to USB-C, we have a few systems that have come on board or few users i should say that have come on board and mostly in the mac environment and what that means for me and, and my role from an event staging standpoint is basically having the appropriate adapters so i can grab that user's content and make certain that it's a part of the show whether it's a venue like this they're on our local radio station on campus or whether we're doing a live event pre-covid uh, in one of our event centers so i really at a personal level or professional level haven't seen much utilization of USB-C thus far. Can you can you roadmap, or, or are you starting to roadmap when that's going to become more prevalent? 
we're really i'll be honest we're having a hard time doing that because there are so many unknowns with covid right now and i don't want to stick specifically to covid as as kind of a, a backstory to all of that but a lot of our planning a lot of our conversation is based on what's happening in the here and now and of course what data we're gathering about the needs going forward as we look at our needs going forward looking at events looking at budget as we're looking to integrate new technologies there's always that question of you know what are our users needs how are they using technologies uh, when clients come in the door and we're um, interfacing with members of the public or business partners who visit our institutions there's that need assessment and and again we're just not seeing data that seems to be indicating that thus far. Now, I'll also preface that by saying that Otterbein University is a small liberal arts college, with a little under 3,000 full-time students, which means we, unlike a big university that has, say, 60,000, 50, or 40,000 individuals uh, across its campus, that need, that technology consumer market, if you will, it can be vastly different. Uh, so being a small footprint of technology users out there. Uh, we have a smaller demographic of users and demands that provide that data that drives innovation on our campus. Yeah, very good. Frank, when, when you look at this, the the thing that kind of threw me off is it, it it's going to be obviously an evolution to USB-C. We will get to the point where USB is essentially the VGA, right? Uh, original USB-1, USB-2. But it's not, like when you look at USB uh, originally, it's like two iterations. USB-C is more the connector opposed to a bandwidth. It's everything from 480 megabits up to 20 on the Thunderbolt side. Um, how do you go about trying to manage that deployment of looking at utilizing USB-C, but ensuring that you're like it, it, it's almost going down the vein of HDMI and, and all of their fun versions and, and headaches that come with that. Yeah. And I think obviously this isn't an, an example of the consumer industry is going to drag the professional industry along. <laughs> and as USB-C becomes more prevalent on devices, it's what people are going to be carrying into conference rooms. And, and also as you start seeing USB-C more on uh, displays. I think that's what people are going to want to use. So the two areas that, that I'm most interested in for this connector, the first one would be in the bring your own meeting scenarios where, uh, you know, people are going into a room that maybe it has a, a, a you know, a, a, a soft codec computer already in the room, but the, the user wants to use their device and or their soft codec of choice. USB-C is a great way to enable that type of experience for people. So you're going to need some sort of endpoint at the desk that has the ability to ingest that. Likewise, I think it could really um, simplify and potentially make the video streaming market a lot more cost effective by, as we start seeing displays on it, USB-C video streaming devices being more the norm for us going forward. Do you expect to see, specifically kind of from a, from a QSC standpoint, do you expect to see for kind of the foreseeable future a situation where you're going to have to have integrators specify like a USB connection at the table as well as a USB-C connection at the table? Are we, are, are we going to play that VGA HDMI game? 
I, I feel, I guess my, my thinking is really more like if and when USB-C starts to replace HDMI as a standard connector, is HDMI going to die really fast or is there going to be this tolerance to try to support the different connectors? <laughs> You've got a dog in the fight. <laughs> yeah, um, but is there going to be a tolerance basically to have these, these multiple connectors available for people to support uh, different infrastructures? And I think that'll be a Hopefully the, the the AV consulting community and you know end users have never been more AV savvy than they are today, I believe. So they're going to have a vision for what they want to do. And it's up to the rest of us manufacturers to actually catch up to what the customer wants because this is a big change, I think. Yeah, very much so. I'm, I'm glad we were talking about the, the consumer industry kind of driving the pro-AV industry because that leads us into our next story. This comes to us from Commercial Integrator, uh, the global semiconductor shortage. Uh, could begin to impact pro AV uh, on on the show that I host on a uh, weekly basis on the residential side. Uh, we've been talking about the the chip shortage for gosh almost pretty much since the year started, uh, but we're just starting to see this affect the pro AV market, especially from the display standpoint. Frank, when you when you follow this, when you see this, it has been dramatically affecting. Uh, the the consumer tech market, everything from PlayStations to TVs to amplifiers. If you're trying to do residential AV, it is a significant challenge right now. And I would argue that it's it's way more mainstream than that when you have companies like Ford Motor Company saying, hey, we can't build cars because mm -hmm. we can't get semiconductors. Or uh, I recently bought my son a gaming computer and our the, the, the manufacturer's ability to deliver is greatly... Uh, slowed down because of this very issue. And it, it is, uh, there's been a number of factors. I mean, I think the, the, the one factor that's pretty obvious to everybody is that what we went through with COVID is you have this, how do you turn an economy down? And now we're trying to ramp it up. And it, it proves that it's a lot more difficult to ramp something up than it is to roll it down. Um, so that's been one concern. And then there's been a, some disasters. I mean, we've had uh, factories, the biggest one being the AKM fire. So AKM is the the industry's largest, um, you know, A to D, D to A converter uh, manufacturer. Every professional audio company is using that, and their factory caught on fire, and they can't deliver products. Um, so supply chain has been a um, something that has been challenged through COVID, and I, I would argue that we're probably at the beginning of what could be a a year or two or more of this kind of feast or famine wild ride. Um, so from my perspective, forecasting and better vision, because I do still believe that the, the, the needs of the AV, professional AV industry at large compared to, say, com consumer or automotive, we're a rounding error. So like what is irrelevant to a Ford Motor Company is actually a lot for a QSC or, you know, insert your favorite manufacturer there. Do you think that's going to be the driving issue is, you know, essentially that that Sony's going to throw so much weight around to try and build PS5s that a, a company, and again, I don't want to say QSCs dealing with this per se, but the manufacturers in the pro AV space are just so small in comparison that they won't be able to purchase. I guess that would be a risk. Um, you know, I, I like to think a little bit more optimistically is that the, 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 the demand that we have is, is, is much smaller, whereas when, when Ford Motor Company has to shut down a factory, that's pretty devastating. Um, it, it, for us, it might mean that, you know, the customer that's used to us shipping it the next day is waiting three weeks or something. That's really been kind of what we've seen with this. 
But uh, and I, uh, you know, I I joke it internally that I'm kind of an honorary member of our supply chain team, and I I feel like our supply chain team works miracles all the time. We find things, and we're also uh, while really quickly kind of trying to qualify as many alternate parts as we can, getting things through SQA. That's a little bit longer of a process, but we really feel like we started some of this exercise actually towards the end of last year. And, you know, these are six to nine month exercises where we're we're starting to look at the summer now. Not only do we have a really good inventory position on on parts, but we've actually getting to the point where we've got some uh, qualified alternatives. So we feel really good about our position today. That's fantastic. Willie, when when you follow this, this to to Frank's point will disrupt to some degree, most likely every manufacturer in our world. How do you go about trying to you know kind of keep your thumb on the pulse as an end user knowing that you know you already have these these somewhat elongated procurement processes how do you go about knowing that when you're ready to procure that equipment it's there (laughs) (laughs) well you know i want to go back and uh, kind of grab frank's last comment about qualifying alternatives if you will um that's a that's a big one to, to answer, right? And, and if I can, uh, by the way, I'm glad we're on this topic uh, because what comes to mind with me when you first began talking about it was the, the ever given ship that was stuck in, in the Suez Canal and what that means as far as products being unavailable. You know, when you talk about semiconductors, and by the way, for anyone listening who don't have a sense of the size of that ship, we can all imagine a railroad car, a boxcar. So imagine a ship capable of carrying 20,000 railroad cars on it. And imagine the size of a small semiconductor that's a little bit larger than your thumb, if you will, and how many you can fit in that container. So the impact, not saying that that vessel was carrying semiconductors, but the impact to gaining access to cargo in a timely manner to manufacture products for the end user, be it cars, be it the interior of a car, uh, being electronics that we're using uh, here and today, it's monumental. So when you ask about you know qualified alternatives, what resources are there? You know, we sit at the table uh, planning at my institution, and we ask that very question. You know, where do we go? We've checked all of our handful of normal vendors and integrators for the needed products. Uh, This past, uh, as we were leading into spring, many were out of stock. So then you go to alternative products and do they meet the need? The need, you know, what's the tolerance? Uh, How will we use them? Are they internal um, deployments? Are they external deployments to our campus that are prone to conditions of weather? and massive shifts in temperature changes, it's, it can cause you to lose a lot of sleep, and indeed it does in some regards, because one, you want to be able to overpromise and underdeliver when we think about the resources and products that we provide to our campus community. Uh, two, you're trying to stay within a very difficult budget, and, and three, you're, you're trying to make certain that whoever is asking for that end product can be assured on your consistent reliability to deliver. And and it means taking a gamble. You know, when we go out and we search for those alternative products, we really are taking a gamble on products that, one, we do not have a track record with. 
we consult with our peers uh, like yourselves who are in the field who may or may not know the product and can speak to the reliability of it and in some instances these are high dollar value targets you know you're spending a lot of your budget uh, on that or there is a high degree of risk that's associated with it some of our deployments with what I'll consider rare products right now went into our nursing clinical lab environment so we're training medical professionals that are going to be treating us and our family members right and those devices have to work now, it's not to say that computer science and math if something goes wrong in their learning environments that there's not as nasty of a sting but you can recalculate <laughs> you know you can solve that equation using chalk but when you're trying to measure heart rate pulse rate when you're trying to differentiate on a visual image a difference between a minor rash versus a lesion that's an early indication of a cancer uh, there's a night and day difference on buying something that you know you can depend on and something that you hope will work um, so I think that that gives you a feel for uh, that real world impact to us end users as we're selecting products integrating it in and what reliability uh, really means at the end of the day my recommendation whether it's an end user a consultant a channel partner has been the same thing your chances of getting availability are much better if you provide me with a lot of visibility so we we can make more adventurous uh, you know decisions in our business if we know our pipeline a lot better, and and that to me is the the ultimate thing right now. We have all the tools to do this stuff, and you know you talk about when you're planning things, you're not planning and purchasing in the same month. You're planning months out. So getting your key manufacturers involved in your planning so that you know what so that they know what you need, I think is more important than ever. And we use Salesforce internally to try to track as much uh, as we possibly can. And, and we really want to use that tool in terms of allocation, too, so that people that do give us that visibility, we're going to prioritize their allocation over somebody else who calls me up and says, hey, I was going to buy your competitor's product, but they don't have it, so I want to buy yours. Well, I don't have enough to go around at this point. I mean, inventory is going to be very precious over the next couple of years, I believe. Yeah. And, and Frank, you touch on a, on, a, on a key point of building that relationship, and I thank you for clarifying that, uh, because that is so critical. I think often, too often, in fact, people will focus on the product and not so much the outcome, you know, the experience. And, and indeed, we can't move forward successfully and work with you and your team if you don't know what our vision is. Uh, so cold calls are great for you know, building that client relationship. No, they're but not. <laughs> it's no way. <laughs> I, I, I tell everybody internally that'll listen, we don't sell used cars. We're trying to create long-term relationships with people so that um, it, there's a lot of companies that make a lot of good stuff. You don't always win on technology. You can win on just being a better partner. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I love that point. Speaking of uh, trying to make everything work together. Uh, let's wrap this up with an article that comes to us from AV Magazine. The CDC is report or reporting that there's a low COVID risk from touching displays. Uh, this is, I, I was patiently waiting for this report and this article to come out. Um, essentially, it is less than a one in 10,000th chance of catching COVID-19 
from a surface that has been contaminated by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Uh, basically, you're not going to get sick from touching the shopping cart or the door handle or anything else. Stop walking around like this. Um, <laughs> Willie, when you see this, I, I'm I'm trusting that your facility and, and most facilities didn't have the extreme gut check of, oh my gosh, we need to get rid of all of our light switches and our door handles and our touch screens and try to implement voice or some other form of interaction device because touchscreens all of a sudden will kill you. Um, when you see this, does this just solidify what we've all kind of thought uh, as far as how we're not going to reimagine every single room and every single touch interface that we have? Absolutely. Absolutely. We have not taken extreme measures on our campus. Uh, we've certainly have practiced uh, reasonable caution, right? So we've increased the amount of um, touchless hand washing stations um, in all of our facilities. Uh, we've made certain that there is hand sanitizer available in offices, particularly high traffic areas for those who would like it. We've made certain to abide by social distancing guidelines. And, and I think what when we can really consider common sense practices, if you will, to, uh, and, and by the way, we're the Audubon University Cardinals. So our committee that oversees the safety is called the protect the nest group yeah uh, which is catchy it's easy to market and uh, great buy-in so that aside uh, one of our cardinal campaigns in protecting the nest is making certain that people are adhering to wearing masks when they're in those publicly shared spaces uh, when you're outside walking across the greens it's a surprise to see how often people keep their mask on but it's not a mandate uh, once they enter the interior of the buildings and they're in those learning spaces, only then is um, is, is that a pressing issue. Uh, so I think it's just common sense practices that are most important to us, not extreme measures. You know, so we're not wiping down every doorknob. Um, and, and by the way, we have town hall meetings monthly, which the entire campus community is invited to participate in uh, virtually. And we do get some interesting questions. One person asks, will the university, I'm trying to think of a polite way of phrasing this, put toilet seat cover covers in all the restrooms so you can close the lid on the toilet so that vapors do not bleed into the air and we inhale said vapors and the contagion continues. Because we don't have documented evidence to support that, you can imagine the expenditure that that would mean financially for the institution to take that minus any solid evidence. A little pun there, solid evidence. I got um, you. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> On that note, uh, Frank, when you see this, this is, you know, something that I want to say, you know, a year ago, this was one of the hot topics. As a matter of fact, the last time I was on this show, we talked about this. We should have you on more often then. I feel kind of bad about that. But it's Tim's fault because, you know, this isn't my show. Um, but but when you see this, because QSC uh, produces and, and, and sells touchscreens, that was all the rage was that you need to disinfect the heck out of everything, spray it down, bleach it up, all the stuff. How do you go about 
pushing the narrative, or maybe not pushing, but but talking about the narrative that, okay, this has come out, the science shows that this is not ridiculous. How do you conquer that fear without sounding tone deaf and also protecting, you know, not destroying your glass? So when we were first coming into COVID and we had these concerns too, nobody's ever going to want to buy a touch panel again. Those days are over. My, my first response is I'd be more concerned about the doorknob than the touch panel because everybody touches the doorknob. You know, maybe one person touches the touch panel in a meeting. Um, we, we launched a campaign early on in, in COVID, uh, what we call bring your own control. So our, our ecosystem, QSIS, has the ability to um, basically through QR codes and an app, we're able to turn your, touch, your, your phone or your iPad into the room touch panel by just taking a picture of the QR code. Ironically, the best place to put that QR code was on the touch panel that was in the room. So we, we, it was a little bit of programming. And, um, and so I think what we're, we, we still feel that there's this ability, no matter what the CDC says, there's always gonna be people that have these phobias about germs. Um, and, and we had them before COVID and in some cases, probably people's got worse through COVID. So I think that there's always this having the flexibility of like, hey, there's a touch panel here and you, you can use it. It's pretty safe, but we have options for, for other types of control. I think ultimately it's up to, you know, an organization to determine and, and obviously the end, the end person to, to figure out what, uh, what they want to touch and what they don't want to. But we did see through COVID that our sales of control panels, touch panels, actually grew. So it was something that we were a little bit wrong about early on. We were predicting the demise of the touch panel. It's, it, it, it hasn't been true yet. Is it not something where a lot of this situation has really just forced us to kind of take a, just a second look, right? You, you would think that the QR code to, to download that on your, you know, on your device isn't that big of a deal, but it's super helpful for someone who either, you know, can't reach it or uh, sits at a different part of the table, but is running the meeting, right? These are, these are simple little things that I, I, I hope don't go away. I agree. I mean, I think the idea of, you know, if I need to do something dynamic during a meeting and I'm presenting, it's a lot easier to have the device on my, or the, the UCI on my phone, as opposed to walking back to the table where the touch panel is or the wall for that matter. So I, I, I just believe in that hybrid experience is, is probably what's best going forward. Excellent. All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you so much. That's all the time we have today. Frank, if people want to connect with you, learn more about QSC, where can they do that? Uh, email address is frank.west at qsc.com. And, um, and I'm also on LinkedIn, really easy to find. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Mr. Franklin, thank you, sir, for joining us just like three hours south of me, technically, kind of. Yeah. Little lake in the middle, but other than that, uh, thank you for joining us. If people want to connect with you, learn more about Audubon, how can they do that? Uh, they can reach out to me, wfranklin at otterbine.edu. I'm also on LinkedIn, or you can find me on Twitter at Willie. Just very short. <laughs> Willie Franklin, really. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Thank you both again. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me at Matt D. Scott on Twitter and pretty much every other social platform. But more importantly, please visit avnation.tv where you'll find this show as well as a wide variety of other shows with all the verticals that we cover. 
When you visit the website, please take a moment to check out our supporters. We are extremely thankful for their support and ask that you check them out as well. Thanks again for watching. That's all the time we have for this episode of AV Week. <laughs>